Hello, readers, listeners, and friends. It is with a very heavy heart that I present this week's episode of Bookin' with our friend Randall Keenan. As I record this, we all just found out that Randall passed away yesterday. He was a wonderful man who was so important to many of us here in North Carolina and beyond. Um, He left us with a wonderful new collection, and some of the discussions that we have in this episode come off completely differently now uh, than they did just two weeks ago when we sat down to record this interview. Um, I'm still in a state of shock and disbelief that he's gone, so forgive me for not having anything more eloquent prepared. We're all going to miss him. Rest in peace, Randall Keenan. Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Randall Keenan. He is the winner of the Whiting Award, the John Dos Passos Prize, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. His new collection is If I Had Two Wings, published by our friends at W.W. W. Norton and Company. Randall, welcome to the program. Uh, hello, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yes, yeah, an honor to have you here. And Randall, I've asked a form of this question to everyone I have interviewed since we entered the COVID era. But here, you are so close to home, uh, where we sit in the coronavirus red zone. How have you been doing during this time? How are you approaching the marketing of your new book? And how are you approaching the potential return of students to the university? Ooh, that, that, that is a multiple question. Um, I mean, it feels like we're living through a science fiction novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not immune to that. Counterintuitively, I have not done as much reading and writing as I would have imagined I would have been doing mm. because it's so distracting, you know, keeping up with the news and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and, you know, I miss my friends. And the university is in a turmoil right now. We... It feels like we're making it up as we go along, and I am worried about a bunch of 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, you know, coming back into this stew, and uh, they're not known for being wise when they're full of hormones like that, so Mm -hmm. it's going to be an adventure. An adventure indeed, and um, I used to work at NC State, and my wife works at Meredith College, and I'm pretty sure everyone is making it up as they go along. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we will. I mean, they don't train you for this sort of thing. You know? No, no, they do I not. Take a pandemic seminar or anything like that. Right, right, right. Yeah, we are all in the same boat there. Um, Randall, as I sort of alluded to uh, in this last question, you're a teacher of creative writing, and the first story in your collection, which is titled When We All Get to Heaven, is a very sensory story uh, with constant powerful descriptors of sense, sounds, and tastes. Is the creation of atmosphere through the senses something you focus on when you compose, and is it something that you encourage your students to be aware of? I think that is one of the central uh, tenets of good prose fiction, and nonfiction for that matter. Um, appealing to the senses, 
letting a, a, the reader smell, taste, feel, hear. Um, and and sometimes when, when writing fails, it's lacking all that. And that's what makes it boring. Right, right. So I try not to bore people. <laughs> <laughs> no, these stories are definitely not boring. I was thinking back um, uh, when I was an undergrad in a creative writing course when our, our instructors used to just sit us down and have us only write about taste for you know, 20 minutes or something like that. And, um, these exercises came to my mind when I was reading this story, when we all get to heaven, continuing along the questioning lines with this story, uh, when we all get to heaven seems to me to be a spin on the story of Robert Johnson at the crossroads, which you do allude to in this story for our listeners who are unaware. And hopefully there aren't too many. Uh, can you tell us about the story of Robert Johnson at the crossroads and then tell us, is this what you were doing with the story of Ed Deacon Phelps and Billy? Uh, well, Robert Johnson was one of the great blues musicians from Mississippi. Um, and uh, there are only a few surviving recordings of him. I mean, not a few. I mean, they're, they're, they're quite, a, quite a number, but uh, some of them don't exist anymore. Mm. Uh, and uh, he was so good that the legend came out that he never disputed it, that he learned how to play guitar because he, when he started off, he was apparently not that good. That's so the legend goes. But that he made a deal with the devil. Mm -hmm. uh, meeting the devil, at, I think in Clarksdale, Mississippi, at a crossroads, a famous crossroads now. And apparently he went there at midnight, met the devil, and the devil gave him this great blues ability with the guitar. Right on. Um, and were you, um, again, in this story, were you intending to spin off of that with the um, interaction between Ed Phelps and Billy? Well, you know, this story was uh, germinated a long time ago. It took me a long time to write this story. And I was living in New York when the uh, National Baptist Convention happened. Mm. Uh, and I was writing a review of, a, of, of, of Dorothy Ellison's novel, I think. And I was distracted by all these black Baptists streaming in to the west side going to the Jacob Javits Center. Mm. And it just really tickled my imagination. All these black Southern Christians coming to New York City. Mm. And the idea came into my mind, like what sort of adventure could a, a person have? And the idea, I don't know why Billy Idol popped into my head, mm. but the idea of this deacon wandering around the city and running into Billy Idol. Um, and, and the Robert Johnson thing came up because if he's going to play guitar for Billy Idol, Billy Idol is going to think of Robert Johnson. Right, right. Thank you so much. Um, the last time I was at Javits was for Book Expo last year, and um, Book Expo was happening in one half of the building, and in the other half there was a marijuana growers convention. So you can imagine, <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine the crowds that were mingling together outside in the smoking yeah, that's area. That's New York for you. That's New York Absolutely, for you. it sure is. Um, thank you, Randall. I want to talk about a line in the second story of this collection, the story that is called "I Thought I Heard the Shuffle of Angels' Feet," and that line is as follows. Dax Cross lay on his bed, flicking through Time magazine as if it had offended him. End quote. <laughs> and of course, 
the narrator had many things going on in this story, but I do think it is important to note that there are many things one could find offensive about Time Magazine in 2020, uh, especially <laughs> especially if one were familiar with the magazine's history. Randall, can you talk about Dax Cross and, inside or outside of the context of the story, the idea that one may glance at a copy of Time Magazine as if they were offended? Well, you know, I wrote that story before I actually had to deal with elder care mm. and um, I you know it, it, I don't want to say I was I was I was prophetic but because um, my grandfather lived to be 102 he died mm. about four years ago mm-hmm. and he wound up in that same situation as Dax Cross mm. so uh, the idea of um, being in that situation and not being happy about it actually my grandfather was very peaceful when he went into uh, and very jovial he had kids coming to visit him because they wanted to meet this hundred year old man but um, but my vision of Dax was I think closer to what a lot of us think about what would happen when we wind up in um, assisted living and um, and I Time Magazine has been a part of my life. I still have a subscription to Time Magazine. Mm-hmm. I had a subscription to Time Magazine when I was in high school. And, uh, yeah, the world is a lot different. I mean, when I was in high school, I would go in and read back issues about the Vietnam War and, and this sort of, you know, in the library. And um, it just is iconic for me about representing something about the news. I mean, now we have the internet, um, which is full of images, but but in those days, you got your images through Time, Newsweek, Life, Look, all those magazines, those photo uh, magazines. Right, yeah, and I think um, I am remembering, and I recently wrote an article after Colson Whitehead appeared on the cover of Time, uh, realizing that Colson Whitehead and Jonathan Franzen are the only two authors who have been on the magazine's cover in a decade, uh, comparing that to decades past when you would sometimes see, you know, 10 or 20 authors on the cover. Um, yeah. Wasn't Toni Morrison on the cover? She, it, this was the previous decade when she was on the cover, I believe. Um, and I believe that there was also a cover story about um, Harry Potter, but not about the author. Right, right. Yeah. Um, well, thank you very much, Randall. Um, the next story in this collection is titled The Eternal Glory That Is Ham Hawks. And Howard Hughes and Howard Hughes Jr. are characters in this story. Some of our listeners may not even know who Howard Hughes is. Uh, my first question about this story is Do you think there will be stories like this written in the future about Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk? <laughs> question um probably about elon musk because he's so bizarre mm-hmm. um jeff bezos he's more like a rockefeller figure i couldn't imagine writing a story about i actually i could write a story about john d rockefeller but be that as it may mm-hmm. i mean hughes was so colorful mm-hmm. and so infamous and so peculiar that i mean i actually wrote that story for my my, my teacher doris vets Oh, nice. I, I promised her, I, I think in an offhanded way, that I was going to find a way to bring Howard Hughes to Thames Creek. Mm-hmm. And she and it tickled her. And she said, oh, and she sort of challenged me to do it. 
and it took me a long time to figure out how to get Howard Hughes into uh, a small town, North Carolina. Mm. I think I did it. I think I did it. <laughs> I think you did too. It's a wonderful story. Uh, thank you so much, Randall. Listeners, we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Randall Keenan. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story. One that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Randall Keenan, author of If I Had Two Wings, published by our friends at W.W. Norton and Company. Randall, I want to stick with the story we were talking about before the break for a moment, and that story, again, is the eternal glory that is Hamhawks. There's something Proustian in this story, as a remembered taste gives us a whole narrative, uh, sets many things in motion, and potentially changes the course of lives. Um, and this alludes back to the very first question we spoke about in this interview regarding the senses, too. Can you talk about the power of a remembered taste and the drive that this type of man memory can create both in a story and in a human being? Well, uh, earlier I was talking about how to get Howard Hughes into uh, small town North Carolina. Mm. And I, it, love would have been just kind of corny I, I, and, and overdone. I couldn't have him coming there looking for some love of his life. But the idea, I mean, I know so many privileged people in this country who have had black cooks and they just fall in love with their food and they sort of pine for it in adulthood. And so the idea that the, a woman from Eastern North Carolina wound up somehow in Houston and cooked for the young Howard Hughes and as he got old and dotty, that he would want to come back and taste her food. And so having all these resources, he tries to find out where she is. And he, when he finds out that she's been she's passed, he goes to find her daughter to ask her to come cook for him. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I, that idea made sense to me. I mean, even the most cold-hearted person eats. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of cold-hearted people who don't appreciate their food, but some people do appreciate their food. And, and that, I found that very compelling. And I like that you compared it to uh, Proust Mad Madeleine's, uh, those cookies. <laughs> right, right. Well, thank you so much, Randall. Cold-hearted people enjoying warm food, indeed. Um, <laughs> next, I want to ask you about the power of a title. And again, I'm curious here about what you tell your students about this. The title I'm going to ask about is Ain't No Sunshine, which is the next story in this wonderful collection. When I read the title, of course, the song by Bill Withers automatically starts playing in my head uh, can you walk us through the this process using the story as an example of choosing a powerful title 
Wow. Um, and it's so sad that he just passed. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I always said my last collection of short stories, like the dead bear, they're dead was the, 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 the um, the muse for that book was probably Al Green, mm-hmm. uh, and I used a lot of his songs in that in that book. And Bill Withers actually, unbeknownst to me, pops up a lot in this book, and and is sort of a muse for um, a lot of these stories. And that story about um, love gone wrong, and being so in love with somebody that it forces you to do uh, ill-advised things comes out of uh, out of the spirit of Bill Withers' songs, and that made so much sense uh, to name that song after that, name that story after that song, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's quite all right. Um, thank you so much, Randall. I want to skip ahead to the story titled Resurrection Hardware or Lard and Promises, because there is an exchange in this story between two characters that I want to ask about. And uh, that question in this exchange is, do you miss North Carolina? And the answer is, only when I'm there. (laughs) Can you talk to us about this exchange and the concept of only missing a place when you are there? Well, I actually, uh, I, I, that was a reversal of something someone had asked me once about after I had left New York, do you miss New York? And I said, only when I'm there. Mm. And, 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 and the, yes, there is something about being in a place and having a, a history with it and realizing that that historic place you will never go back to. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that, that's at the, at the root of that, that comment. Yeah, absolutely. And that um, I'm glad I asked because that makes so much more sense to me now after I had I lived in San Francisco for several years and then only miss it when I go visit. Uh, as you're <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, I want to ask about another passage in the same story. And the quote is as follows. Uh, Remembering a short story by John Updike about a 50 year old high school reunion. They are never what we build them up to be. We expect some grand revelation. Revelations work on their own time, not ours. Randall, as a human being, is it possible to plan a moment around a grand revelation, or are we all blindly stumbling into epiphanies like a character in a James Joyce story? I think we are. If we are self-aware and aware of the moment, uh, I think we build up our ideas of things. I mean, I've never been in a grand wedding but I have a feeling that the brides and the grooms you know they build up all these expectations and it turns out being something utterly different than what they expected Mm -hmm. and I I have this feeling at funerals Mm. Uh, I have this feeling at you know concerts I mean I think we all do we all do I think Um, and that's what I think the writing that moves me the most is the one that the ones that interrogate those moments, mm-hmm. um, and and often I tell my students that one of the ways you can write a great story is to write it around some grand event, you know, like a wedding or a funeral or this that and the other. I mean, that gives you an automatic structure, you mm-hmm. see. Um, but interrogating what happens in that moment what your expectations are and what the reality is and how you actually feel at the moment 
gives you uh, 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 great opportunities. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Randall. And finally, I want to ask you about all of the apparitions in this collection, the ghosts and the visions. So many of your characters seem to doubt their visions instead of confronting them head on. Uh, I can't think of an exception. Um, But can you talk about this thread that extends itself throughout your wonderful collection? Well, have you ever been to... Duplin County, North Carolina. <laughs> I, I don't think so. Um, it's, it's, it's like the family I grew up in. Everybody was seeing ghosts, and everybody's house was haunted, and there were all these. Everybody had visions. People were always talking about their dreams and trying to interpret what this means and what that means. Mm. When somebody dies, you can swear a cousin said, "Oh, I felt it. I felt it." Mm. Um, and this isn't just black culture. It's not just Southern culture. I think it's all, it's a, it's a hemispheric thing in, in many ways. It, 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 uh, it's just a way of looking at the world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Randall, there is so much more to talk about here, but we don't want to spoil everything for our readers. What a fantastic collection this is. I cannot wait uh, for your event here at Quail Ridge Books with Ron Rash. We are lucky to have this book, and we are lucky to have you here in North Carolina. Well, Listen- thank you, thank you, thank you. That yeah, means a lot. Absolutely, Randall. Thank you. And listeners... I have been speaking with Randall Keenan, author of If I Had Two Wings, which is published by our friends at W.W. Norton and Company. Randall, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Once again, I would like to thank Randall Keenan for joining me. Signed copies of If I Had Two Wings can be ordered at www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping while supplies last. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one month of free audiobooks and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jefferies and this has been Bookin'.